and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 44 and uh, excellent guest this week. I'm so excited to talk about something that I think is not only important, but actually quite timely and, uh, you know, I think really significant for some of the broader issues that we've been discussing both here on this program and in general on Counterpunch. But before we do that, let me make my pitch for Counterpunch since I've already mentioned it. Uh, Counterpunch is is really important to me personally. It's a place that I found a long time ago that really uh, not only helped me in my political development, but really made me feel like there were spaces online that allowed people on the left to really engage in critical analysis, to do so from a variety of perspectives, and to really challenge a lot of the dominant narratives, and dominant narratives not only in the corporate media, but also in the pseudo-alternative media. Remember how many outlets we can think of off the top of our heads that are funded by the the very same Wall Street uh, billionaires and financiers and foundations that we're railing against. Then there's Counterpunch, which is really something different. That's part of the reason why I respect it so much and why I'm so uh, you know proud to be a part of the Counterpunch project. And one of the ways that you can also be a part of that is by getting a print subscription to the magazine. It's an excellent magazine. I think it's really the best magazine out there today. Um, you know, it's great to get it in your mailbox. The artwork, the columns, really timely, hard-hitting stuff. I think it's great. Did I really just say hard-hitting? I hate that phrase, but I did, and there's no going back. Now, Counterpunch Online, very important as well. Keep that space open. If you don't want to get the print subscription, you can always donate to Counterpunch via PayPal, credit card, all the usual, all the usual, um, you know, features. So, uh, and then finally, let me just say Counterpunch Radio, trying to build the audience as much as possible. Give us a positive review on iTunes. Share us via email, via Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Uh, take a Instagram of yourself listening to me talking. I don't know why that would be done, but I guess you could. Um, so also, finally, my website, I try to plug it every once in a while, stopimperialism.org. You can find all my work there. Uh, anyway, enough of the shameless promotion. I want to turn to my guest this week. I'm so excited to speak with Carmelo Ruiz. Carmelo is a journalist, an author, and an activist. He is visiting faculty at the Institute for Social Ecology. He is also the director of the Latin American Energy and Environment Monitor. You should definitely follow him on Twitter if you're so inclined, at Carmelo Ruiz, uh, spell just how it sounds. Carmelo Ruiz, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Uh, hello, Eric. Uh, thank you for this opportunity and uh, greetings to all the audience out there. Thank you for coming on the show to talk about a number of really important issues. And, you know, I want to just, I want to jump right into it. You're on the ground in Puerto Rico. This is really ground zero in many ways for a number of critical developments that we've seen over the last couple of months and really the last year or two. Obviously, we have this question of the debt crisis, quote unquote. And uh, this has been, I think, well documented, well known among people on the left, but but I think that there are a lot of aspects to this issue that are missing from the conversation. So let's begin with with the debt crisis, so-called, and how you read this crisis. Is it really a crisis or is it really uh, about perception? Well, a lot of the – you see, Puerto Rico was set up by the United States starting in the 1950s as a 
showcase of democracy and prosperity to show Latin America the benefits of U.S. tutelage. And in 1959 came the Cuban Revolution, and things were never the same after that. After that, Puerto Rico became a lot more important as this uh, showcase and a bulwark and an anti-Cuba that uh, other uh, the Latin American uh, elites and intellectuals could, could look up to. But a lot of this prosperity was built on debt. It wasn't built on handouts. It wasn't built on welfare. It was money that had to be returned with interest. And the crisis really began to show in, I would say, in the last 10 years or so. And what the last few governments did was borrow even more money, take even more loans to pay those loans and let the successors take over. And it's gotten to the point that in the last two or three years, the situation has finally uh, become unsustainable. The bondholders, the creditors are getting pretty feisty. And we're seeing a situation very similar to Greece, Detroit, and many others. But what complicates things is that Puerto Rico is a colony. It is not an independent country. Even a municipality of the U.S. like Detroit is incorporated. Puerto Rico is not incorporated which makes it doubtful as to who are you going to collect from. If, if an entity is not incorporated, how on earth are you going to collect? Um, so, so we have this colonial issue. The U.S. is sovereign over Puerto Rico. And as I argued in a column that I published um, only a couple of days ago on the Progressive Media Project, only a sovereign country can assume a debt. And the law is very clear. The law in Puerto Rico is based on an agreement between Spain and the United States reached in Paris in a conference room in late 1898 when the Spanish-American War ended. And they agreed, we have consulted the Puerto Rican people, that the U.S., specifically the U.S. Congress, shall have sovereignty over Puerto Rico, not the people of Puerto Rico. And even with all the window dressing that was set up in the 1950s to provide the facade of self-government, the Paris Treaty was never abrogated. The U.S. Congress is still sovereign over Puerto Rico. And as we independence movement have argued over and over, you can't have it both ways. The U.S. cannot insist on having a colonial chokehold over Puerto Rico. And at the same time, we're in the position of having to pay for the... You, you could say, for the stick that we're being hit on the head with. Hmm. So it, it's, a, it's a very, very different situation. Another thing is that Puerto Rico doesn't issue its own currency. Neither did Greece. That's one of the things that uh, created a lot of problems for Greece because Greece, like uh, the other European Union countries, ceded part of its sovereignty in order to join the European Union. And one of the things they... Uh, had to give in on was, you know, the the right to make their own currency, entering a continent-wide monetary union. In the case of Puerto Rico, we don't issue our own currency either, so we don't have the tools that a sovereign country has of, you know, uh, fiscal control tools that would uh, palliate the impact of this economic crisis. But in fact, Puerto Rico has no sovereignty at all. Our currency is printed by the United States, by the Federal Reserve, and just maybe many Americans don't know, but we Puerto Ricans have no representation in the U.S. Congress. Absolutely none at all. We don't have the presidential vote 
Although we have primaries here, which I think is a big joke and a, an insult to us Puerto Ricans. We don't have any representation in international forums either, like the Organization of American States, the UN. We are one big international nobody. So the situation is fundamentally different from a U.S. municipality or a sovereign country like Greece, and it cannot be addressed outside the issue of colonialism. I think that's absolutely right. And one of the, while I, I do definitely agree with that point, I will say that there are striking similarities. And one of the similarities with Greece is this question of uh, bond sales. Because really, when you're talking about borrowing, the borrowing that Puerto Rico uh, underwent since, I guess, really since about 2007, when you saw really the beginning of the collapse of GDP, is that you saw these bond sales. And who mm. was the major middleman in all of this. It was the big Wall Street banks. It was the big Wall Street uh, too-big-to-fail banks who basically would underwrite the bond sales. Then they would turn around and sell Puerto Rico bonds to various hedge funds, various speculators, and make a nice middleman profit off of it. So again, we have this very similar equation where we have this exploiting Wall Street class that basically uses Puerto Rico in the way that they would use any other asset yeah absolutely uh we the crisis has been managed by people who benefited from it in the first place like the the ubs bank and we have all these pundits and all these commentators especially former governors who by all means they should be in prison they were in large part responsible for bringing us to this crisis um i wanted to I wanted to make reference to that column that I wrote for the Progressive. Uh, there was a longer version. It was cut uh, a little bit. I added something about how Puerto Rico's colonial economy is actually also a ba- not only a bad deal for us, but for U.S. taxpayers. Can you I give us? The, can you, I'm sorry. Give, give us the title. Give us the title of that article so people can yeah, find it. Uh, Puerto Rico owes nothing. Great. It's a syndicated column, so it's appearing here and there, and it's being distributed by the Progressive Media Project, which is uh, a branch of the Progressive Magazine out there in Wisconsin. Uh, In the longer version, I talk about how the colonial economy of Puerto Rico is also a bad deal for U.S. taxpayers. I don't have the exact figures here, but they're not all important. What is important is that... Uh, Puerto Rico gets something like perhaps uh, $16 billion in aid for social programs every year. Uh, stuff like food stamps and you know Medicare, Medicaid, uh, federal housing programs, all kinds of social benefits. But the profits that are uh, produced for major multinational corporations active here, like Monsanto and Walmart, are at least twice as large, a lot larger, much more than the $16 billion we get in aid. And that goes right into Wall Street and into the big banks in the United States. So you have U.S. taxpayers paying here uh, for benefits here, and the ultimate beneficiaries are tax-dodging corporations in the United States. I have to say that the, the Puerto Rico government subsidizes the payroll of Walmart and Monsanto, Now, you wouldn't think of those corporations as too poor to afford payroll. So it adds insult to injury that the Puerto Rico government is actually covering some of the operational expenses of these corporations. 
So all of this is built on debt. It's not handouts, uh, none of that. We already paid for this infrastructure. If, if you come to Puerto Rico, it's a very advanced infrastructure, tons of roads, buildings, and public services. Puerto Rican workers built that. You know, workers were not imported from Kansas or anything. This was all built on the sweat of Puerto Ricans. And it was also a lot of it paid for with loans, you know, bond issues that we already paid for. But we have uh, usury. Basically, we have paid for all of this over and over and over again. That's where the concept of odious debt comes in, which is basically a debt that can't ever be paid. It is malicious. It is uh, manipulation of interest rates. It's meant to uh, lock you into a cycle of slavery. It happens with individuals, you know, who get have gotten caught in subprime loans and end up paying interest after interest. But in this case, it's a whole country. And it's a, uh, it's a whole country that has no sovereignty at all. And like I say in my column, the concept of audience debt was originally formulated by legal scholars who studied the negotiations between the U.S. and Spain over Cuba at the end of the Spanish-American War. turns out that Cuba owed something like $400 million to Spain, adjusted for inflation. I don't know. That should be uh, several billion dollars by today's standards, I guess. And the U.S. told Spain, no, 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 and no. Cuba is, was not a sovereign country. Debts incurred under colonialism are not valid. They are not legitimate. So we Puerto Ricans in the independence movement who know about this case argue, well, if that was good for Cuba, it should be good for the United States. But of course, the United States will not admit that Puerto Rico is a colony because that will call the attention of the United Nations. The U.S. government's position is that the Puerto Rican people have already decided their destiny in a referendum in 1952, and there's nothing else to talk about. But it remains an odious debt, and again, it's directly linked to the problem of colonialism. Even Bernie Sanders won't say Puerto Rico is a colony. He came to Puerto Rico in May 16, and he said that the U.S. treats Puerto Rico like a colony. Well, that's pretty bold, I guess, but he came up pretty short. Puerto Rico is a colony, but even Bernie won't be willing to say something like that. Yeah, that's right. And one of the other things I think that's really critical here is not only to understand that Puerto Rico is a colony just for the sake of understanding it, but to understand why that's important, because really what we're talking about here is essentially not only good old-fashioned colonialism, but what could be called 21st century neocolonialism. And the sort of neocolonialism goes hand-in-hand with neoliberalism in many ways. And just as we saw in Greece, as I mentioned you had these banks like Deutsche Bank and some and you know some of the other big European banks and Wall Street banks that were really underwriting these bond sales and refusing to take you know the haircut that they needed to in order to keep that country functioning similarly with Greece and what or sorry with Puerto Rico and what we've seen in Greece is this push towards privatization or what we might say asset stripping seizing and privatizing and selling 
selling off the assets of the people, of the nation itself. So my question to you is, are we seeing the beginning stages of a similar asset stripping of Puerto Rico, the infrastructure that you were talking about, the social services, all of these things being privatized and sold off to the highest bidder? Are we looking at that scenario? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We've been looking at that and for some time now. It's only accelerated now. Uh, but back in the 1950s, there was a model of Keynesian state-led capitalism set up in Puerto Rico. Uh, especially in the 1940s, uh, the last American that was sent in as governor was Rexford Togwell, a Roosevelt New Deal liberal who made a, who set up a very uh, state-dependent uh, capitalism in Puerto Rico, where the state was very much involved in all kinds of activities and in regulation. But then, uh, as the days wore on, uh, 1950s and 60s, um, Changes began to take place in Puerto Rico. Starting in 1948, we were allowed allowed to vote for our own governor for the first time in almost 450 years. Um, and then when we started uh, electing our own uh, governor, so Luis Muñoz Marín brought in on board uh, a technocrat, what we would call today a neoliberal called Teodoro Moscoso, who started pushing out the Togwell program and the New Deal programs in favor of private uh, private enterprise-led development. Later on, he, he was one of the main architects of the current economic model, and it was so important for U.S. geopolitics, you know, to look after this for the success of this program, that Kennedy, President Kennedy, later appointed Teodoro Moscoso as the first head of the Alliance for Progress in 1961. Anyway, Puerto Rico started moving uh, slowly but surely towards privatization and private enterprise-led development. It started really picking up speed in the 80s and 90s. And a lot of the things that were done added to the debt, uh, massive construction of highways instead of favoring public transportation, roads that took hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of dollars to, uh, to build. We also had a, in the 1990s a health reform. La Reforma de Salud, which didn't question the power of pharmaceutical corporations of HMOs, it ended up being a union-busting, neoliberal public subsidy for private corporations. And that is uh, responsible for a big chunk of the debt. In 1998, the, the state phone company, La Telefónica, was privatized. There was a very high-profile worker strike. There was a lot of violence employed against strikers. And with that, the Puerto Rico government lost a big source of income, making things even worse. Uh, so now we're seeing more extreme measures. Starting in 2009, uh, Governor Luis Fortuño, a statehooder associated with the U.S. Republican Party, enacted Law Number 7, which with a stroke of a pen laid off, fired tens of thousands of government employees, and now we're heading to the extreme that there are forces in Puerto Rico and Washington calling for a fiscal control board, which is uh, not very different at all from what has been happening in Michigan and Detroit, in which an unelected board, which I don't even know uh, if it will have more than one resident of the island, is going to decide everything. They're talking about uh, slashing the minimum wage, um, seizing the assets of Puerto Rico, and basically overturning the decisions of 
our democratically elected representatives. But of course, we live in a colony. There was no democracy in the first place. There's a big, big movement now against the Fiscal Control Board. But we in the left are warning that that's only one tool that they're using to squeeze us. If the control board doesn't go through, they'll try some other way. Uh, Now they're talking about putting the utility, the electricity utility, which has the strongest labor union in Puerto Rico, in private hands. And they even consider the proposal of seizing the assets of ratepayers that are falling behind in their payments. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, uh, further privatization of health, uh, police state control measures. The Puerto Rico Bar Association has already declared uh, yesterday that they will give pro bono legal assistance to anybody doing civil disobedience against this fiscal control board. And it's becoming news in the U.S. You know, for example, Bernie Sanders has been pretty public about this situation. Lin-Manuel Miranda, the, the artist, made a whining plea on the John Oliver show for Puerto Rico. He gave his conditional support kind of lukewarm uh, support for the fiscal control board, which I think is awful. But as we have been uh, saying in progressive organizations, let's not focus too much on the fiscal control board because there's people over here, leeches and opportunists, who are all against the fiscal control board, but they don't oppose austerity or colonialism per se. And that that's a big loophole that opens the door to all kinds of opportunism. We're not just opposed to the fiscal control board. We oppose austerity. We oppose colonialism and capitalism, all of those things. So it's not that we're not worried about the fiscal control board, but we can't focus too much on it and lose sight of the larger picture. That's right. But at the same time, we do want to draw these connections because I think they are critical. I mean, I remember writing about this uh, last summer, and uh, I guess it had just happened. I'm not sure what the latest developments on this issue are. But at the time, the, the, the then Governor Padilla had hired this guy, Stephen Rhodes, who was the mm-hmm. bankruptcy judge who had made the pro-Wall Street, pro-banker uh, rulings in Detroit to act as Puerto Rico's basically consultant to what at the time was supposed to be the debt restructuring process. So even the so-called progressive solutions oftentimes really fall right into the neoliberal Wall Street finance capital model. Exactly. A lot of uh, liberals or or so-called progressives over here don't question the debt itself. They talk about renegotiating, they're talking about bailouts or um easier terms or uh give us the power to declare bankruptcy which would require um a change in federal law but they don't question the debt i mean limanol miranda didn't say uh you know the debt is illegitimate neither did bernie sanders when he came over and a lot of uh, opportunists are talking you know about restructuring and renegotiating the debt And what we in the independence movement say is that there is no debt. In fact, we are owed reparations. And I have to say there was one change, one editorial change made to my column. Uh, They put in debt forgiveness. Uh, I wouldn't have put that there because forgiveness sounds like we did something wrong that we need to be forgiven for. No, no, we, we, you know, it's Uncle Sam who should ask for forgiveness. We don't don't have to uh, be forgiven for anything. 
That's right. And, and, and again, the solutions oftentimes are the most excruciatingly painful. And just to back up your point here about austerity, I remember when I was researching this issue for, for the column that I wrote almost a year ago now, um, the, this woman, Ann Kruger, uh, former, yeah. former chief economist of the World Bank uh, and the first deputy managing director of the IMF. This is somebody yeah. who is about as, as inside as insiders get. And she was one of the co-authors of this very important study study called Puerto Rico, A Way Forward. Okay, this is June 2015, so almost a year ago now. And I mean, I remember looking at this report, you're talking about, uh, you know, exemption from adherence to the minimum wage. You're talking about the relaxation of youth labor laws, the elimination of bonuses, reduction of vacation days, redefinition of overtime, basically scrapping all of the labor laws that are really the cornerstones of a lot of the labor protections that workers have. And we could run run down the list, eliminating welfare, housing benefits, poverty reduction, food stamps, all of these things. I mean, this is classic austerity, but in Puerto Rico, it's austerity to the nth degree because it's a situation where you basically were already under austerity. Right. And let's not forget also the raiding pension funds. Yes. Pension funds are the big piñata, you know, the pension funds of the government employees, that's billions of dollars, and they're already talking, well, you know, we need that money in order, in order to uh, balance the budget. And we're fighting right now very hard over here to preserve those benefits, especially the utility company workers. Um, and you see, the country's being taken apart. Uh, right now, uh, government services are being given by overworked, underpaid, demoralized government workers, People are, more and more people than ever are applying for food stamps precisely when Congress uh, slashed $8.8 billion from the program in the United States with the signature and approval of Barack Obama. So people are leaving. They're leaving by hundreds of thousands per year. Many of them are moving to Central Florida, and we know that a considerable number of them are homeless now in Orlando, in Gainesville. In the Miami area, many are going to the New York area, Chicago, Hartford. And, of course, uh, since we are U.S. citizens, we cannot be stopped. Like Mexicans or Hondurans, so, you know, we will never see the inside of a concentration camp. We will never, uh, you know, like those run by the immigration and naturalization, or we've never been through the experience of applying for U.S. citizenship or getting a green card. We Puerto Ricans don't know what that is. Uh, we've been U.S. citizens since 1917. So it's not like the U.S. can say, well, you know, Puerto Rico can go to hell for all we want. No, we're moving over, <laughs> if that is the case. I myself may end up moving over. I have moved to the state several times over. Uh, just a year ago, I moved to Ecuador, and I stayed there for a year working with Telesur. So people are leaving left, right, and center, and that also creates an additional problem because there's a smaller tax base. Yeah, exactly right. Well, 
Um, I just want to touch on one other issue before we go to break, and this is really a political issue tied to all of this. Um, You had written recently uh, about political repression that we're seeing, and specifically repression targeted at pro-independence activists um, and, you know, obviously pro-independence activists who are on the left. And the question that I have for you is, are we seeing an escalation of the repression by the authorities in the wake of of this crisis uh, really reaching the mainstream. In other words, as this as this evolves and as more attention is paid and as more as the stakes get higher, are the authorities ramping up their crackdown on activists? Uh, yes. Well, it's hard to tell what the empire is thinking. We, we can only guess at this point. But about a month ago, I believe this was late April. Three pro-independence activists were stopped by the FBI and forced to give samples of their DNA. Of those three, two, uh, two were or had been members of the Macheteros, which is an underground secret clandestine operation that engages in sabotage, uh, covert action, intelligence, uh, espionage, counterintelligence, and even military action against the United States. Uh, it's an organization that has given the FBI a lot of grief. And all of a sudden, they didn't say what this was about. What were they looking for? There was a court order uh, signed by a federal judge, Jose Fuste, saying that 13 more individuals would have their DNA sample by the first week of May. That order was never served. And Fuste has since been sacked for being a serial sexual harasser, offender. Uh, We don't know if this was um, orchestrated or what was that about, but anyway, Josh Fuste is now history. Nobody knows what that was about, but it is believed uh, there were sources that informed the Puerto Rican press that it had something to do with Sabana Seca, which is uh, a place uh, where the Macheteros attacked in December of 1979. Some uh, members of the Macheteros overtook a bus full of U.S. Navy personnel just coming out of a U.S. Navy intelligence base, which I believe was part of the Echelon espionage, a global espionage system, and they sprayed it with machine gun fire, killing two people and wounding several more. That was the single boldest, deadliest attack ever carried out by the Macheteros. For more than 30 years, no arrests were ever made. Not that the FBI didn't try. There was a grand jury in the early 80s. They came out empty-handed because nobody, nobody spoke anywhere. Uh, And I have to say, I must uh, point out that that attack in Savannah Seca was in retaliation for the murder of an independence activist, uh, one of the top leaders of the Socialist League, Angel Rodriguez Cristobal, who was in jail in Tallahassee Federal Prison, for trespassing into the U.S. Navy's uh, firing range in the island of Vieques. He mysteriously appeared dead, hanging in his cell. Uh, court uh, prison authorities even today insist that he killed himself. Nobody in Puerto Rico believes it. Um, our people over here always believe that that was a warning to all those people who advocate independence in Puerto Rico. So anyway, um, these and other actions carried out by the Macheteros are still being uh, investigated, and the FBI wants to make arrests. It is possible. One theory we have is that we do have one political prisoner, prisoner of war in U.S. jails, who is Oscar Lopez. 
uh, also known as Oscar Lopez Rivera. He was a member of the Armed Forces of National Liberation, the FALN. He was uh, captured, arrested 35 years ago this week, and we want his freedom. He's the very last of that military unit to remain in jail, and apparently uh, U.S. authorities might be willing to release him if they can arrest a few more independence fighters so that there will not be a second ever of uh, colonialism without there being uh, political prisoners, prisoners of war being held in U.S. jails. But And of course, it could be related to grassroots organization against the Fiscal Control Board and all these upcoming austerity measures, uh, a measure to instill fear in people, stopping people here and there at random to take their DNA and not tell them what this is about. Uh, it's a way of creating a climate of fear, absolutely. No doubt about it. Um, Oscar Lopez Rivera is obviously one of the longer serving political prisoners that we have. And uh, obviously demanding his freedom is almost a uh, prerequisite for any real uh, activism for social justice and for political prisoners. So uh, obviously free Oscar Lopez Rivera. Anyway, we have to take a break. Uh, Stick with us, listeners. A lot more to touch on with Carmelo Ruiz on the other side of the break. So many more aspects to this story um stick with us we'll be right back life is a debt that must someday be paid born when we were born left us helpless and self-obsessed last night
we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Carmelo Ruiz. I again uh, would urge you to follow his work. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Carmelo Ruiz. And uh, obviously, he's also a regular contributor to Counterpunch. Definitely should read his columns and uh, follow his blog as well. Um, so, Carmelo, I want to shift gears a little bit. And it's it's definitely related, but it's a slightly different topic. And, and, and that is... The situation um, in Puerto Rico as it pertains to agriculture and the movement into Puerto Rico of the big agri firms such as Monsanto and others. So I want to know specifically what is the what is the situation of uh, rural agricultural producers in Puerto Rico? How are their rights being, let's say, impinged upon by these corporations? And what is the situation as it pertains to these U.S.-based uh, agri-firms? Well, Puerto Rico imports almost all of its food. Now, there might be an argument over what percentage is imported. Uh, the lowest estimate is 80%, but it could probably be higher than that. Uh, 60 years ago, and 60, 70 years ago, right after World War II, Puerto Rico pretty much easily supplied its population with most of its food. Uh, the colonial model has turned Puerto Rico into an importation, uh, importing platform for the surplus of U.S. agricultural commodities, which, uh, I mean... We please Uncle Sam a lot more as consumers than as producers, especially of agricultural commodities. So a lot of the, some of the overproduction of uh, agricultural commodities in the U.S. ends up in Puerto Rico, frustrating local production because we cannot compete with all that meat, all that dairy, all that, uh, all, all that grain, um, We've been flooded with wheat. We can't grow wheat, but, you know, it created a, a taste for wheat products in the local population. So farmers in Puerto Rico are, are real survivors. Uh, we have a, an agricultural movement and it's beginning to take off, especially oriented towards agroecological pesticide-free production. Uh, I must also say Puerto Rico does have a, a sinister form of uh, production in its land, and that's the production of GMO crops. Uh, Puerto Rico has a long history under colonialism of being uh, a test tube for experiments of all kinds, chemical, biological, nuclear, military, medical. Uh, the first uh, experiments, field tests of contraceptives, were carried out on Puerto Rican women with no medical ethics at all uh, being involved. Uh, Agent Orange and many military-type defoliants were tested on our rainforests and on many other uh, ecosystems, and we still don't know what was the price paid in human health. Uh, we had military experiments, war games in Vieques and Culebra. We also have um, other types of experiments, uh, a nuclear war, uh, nuclear radiation experiments were done in the, our rainforest in El Junque. And of course, the Americans, you know, their government will always say that the experiments were perfectly safe, well within ethical guidelines. And we tell them, if they're so safe, go do them in Ithaca. Do them in Long Island next time. Do them in Fresno, California. Do them right in Chicago. Don't come to my house to do what you wouldn't be willing to do in yours. Anyway, part of this history of experimentation includes GMO crops, 
genetically modified crops, according to the USDA's documentation, as early as 1987, there were already field tests of uh, GMO crops, mostly uh, herbicide-resistant crops. And now we have a concentration, I found out through my research uh, about a decade ago, that Puerto Rico has, per square mile, more concentration of GMO field tests than any place, uh, any of the 50 U.S. states, with the possible exception of Hawaii. In, in terms, in absolute terms, we're something like number four. We, we have more field tests than California, which is a lot larger. So there's been a policy of intentionally concentrating that research in the plains of the south and also in the northwest corner. We have something like five municipalities concentrating almost all of this activity. There's also crop propagation, especially in the winter months, because, you know, you can't do any agronomic research in Minnesota or South Dakota in the winter. In Puerto Rico, you can do this year-round. So a lot of the field testing and propagation of seed is done right in Puerto Rico. And that seed is taken to the United States and other parts of the world and planted. So we, do, we constitute a very important link in the biotech production chain. We do have a protest movement that is uh, coming up. Uh, we have a national coalition. You can look it up on Facebook, Nada Santo Sobre Monsanto, which is a pun. It's in Spanish, you know, nothing saintly about Monsanto. Uh, there are other organizations affiliated with La Via Campesina, which are active in opposing GMO crops. The whole independence movement is arrayed against, arrayed against this uh, type of uh, biological colonialism. And... We had a major rally against Monsanto on May 21st in the city of Ponce. Uh, the Independence Party joined. The Working People's Party, the PPT, was there in force. Uh, people from all over, the independence and environmental movements, and even doctors, scientists, professors, academics, and farmers, uh, telling Monsanto to go home. Um, and Monsanto made the unusual step of actually uh, making a public statement uh, repudiating the demonstrations until very recently their policy had been to take no questions from the press. But right now they are in the defensive. They are being forced to defend their chemical and seed products like Roundup and GMO technologies. And the movement is becoming stronger. It's attracting more doctors, nutritionists and professionals and people from all walks of life that are worried about the poisoning of their environment, mm -hmm. the water, and our food, and looking for a, a new mode of agricultural production, which is agroecology. And uh, people are starting to talk about food sovereignty. But as we say in the independence movement, food sovereignty sounds absolutely great, but you need sovereignty in the first place. Indeed, that's that's well put. Um, question just comes to my mind while you were while you were speaking about that. Um, you know, recently we read about this attempt, but I don't know whether it's gone through or not. I haven't read in the last couple of days, but this attempt by the European, the German-based uh, pharmaceutical company Bayer yeah. to buy out Monsanto and to really join those two massive corporations, thereby diversifying the pharmaceutical portfolio of Bear and expanding into the chemical industry and then 
conversely, uh, Monsanto expanding more its European uh, business and, and various other things. Now, I wonder whether you've thought about to what extent would that impact what Monsanto is doing in Puerto Rico? Because obviously, this greatly expands their resources. It greatly expands their international reach and the international scope of their operations. So I'm just wondering whether uh, anybody is talking about how that might impact what's happening on the island. Yeah, it's, it's generated quite a bit of comment among anti-GMO activists. Bayer has uh, GMO crops right here in Puerto Rico. And as I wrote on Counterpunch in a couple of articles in recent times, Monsanto is having a really hard time. They're finding it very hard to compete. They fired something like at least 10% of their labor force they, uh, worldwide. They closed down their agricultural station in Isabela, in the northwest of Puerto Rico, and consolidating all of the operations in Juana Diaz, in the south of the island. Um, there are less and less competitors all of the time. Roundup, which is their, um, how do you say, their signature, signature product, yeah, yeah. is fast becoming useless because of weed resistance and also uh, governments all over the world, including the state of California, are classifying it as carcinogenic. But, you know, developing new agrochemicals requires millions and millions of dollars, and corporations don't want to spend on R&D. They'd rather have somebody else do it. It's much easier to buy other corporations and their lines of products. But there's so few competitors. There's something like five companies left because Dow and DuPont agreed to merge they were the only serious competition Monsanto had in the U.S. Now they are a single company and they can crush Monsanto into oblivion. Across the ocean, Monsanto was betting on buying Syngenta, which is the world's biggest pesticide company based in Switzerland. They placed several bids since last year, but the Chinese came over and took the grand prize. Yep. So now Syngenta is a Chinese company. So all that there's left is two German companies, Bass and Bayer. And Bayer, uh, Bayer already uh, submitted their bid. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen next, but Monsanto is really desperate. They need to make partnerships with somebody somewhere. Uh, I have to say that Bayer is, uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is not my friend. Bayer was uh, a company that was part of the industrial combine that manufactured uh, poison gas for the Nazi gas chambers during World War II. Yep. They're also the inventors of heroin, aspirin. They're one of the world's leading pharmaceutical companies. Monsanto is also trying to get rid of its name, which is universally hated. That was the whole idea of making a merger with Syngenta or with anybody, and also to be able to incorporate outside the U.S. in order to avoid paying hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes per year. Uh, We don't know what Monsanto is going to do now. Uh, it's going to be eaten up by some other corporation or they might try to diversify and go into other lines of business like precision farming or climate smart agriculture. One very good source of information on this is a Canadian NGO called the ETC group, ETC as in etc. They uh, have been turning out some very, very good timely reports on the concentration and the cartels and what they're going through right now. 
The other question I want to ask you in regards to this, uh, you mentioned La Via Campesina, and there's probably, there's a number of these other uh, peasant movements, landless farmer movements, and, and, and so forth. And what I'm wondering is, we've seen in places like Brazil and actually elsewhere in Latin America, targeted assassinations and killings of uh, indigenous activists, indigenous rights activists, peasants' rights activists, farmers, uh, people who have really been not only active, but have really been organizers of these movements. I'm wondering, are we seeing similar targeting of uh, agricultural peasant activists in Puerto Rico? Uh not yet. I, I don't think it's a movement that it's still is yet worrying the transnationals. Right now, the weapon of choice uh, is ridicule. Basically, academics and deans associated with the industrial agriculture model, basically they scoff at this type of peasant agriculture uh, whenever they whenever it is mentioned. And of course, they use their academic prestige and they cite studies by the American Association for the Advancement of Science, National Academy of Sciences, they, of course, they, they cherry-pick uh, whatever studies there are, proving that pesticides and hybrid seed and GMOs are the way to go and that there's no room for that in, uh, for you know uh, ecology or agroecology in serious agriculture. They have a lot of power because they control the academic institutions, especially the University of Puerto Rico, which provides Monsanto with a lot of uh, its labor force. So that's with you uh, with taxpayers' money that we end up providing uh, cheap and docile labor to these corporations. But <clears throat> but these institutions also create ideology; they create public opinion, and they serve as a front to hide the interests of Monsanto and other corporations. And under the guise of neutrality and academic uh, seriousness, they pressure our government in order to keep allowing uh, these corporations to have pretty much what they want to. But we haven't seen anything like what is happening in Latin America right now. I do want to point out that uh, there's a a new breed of young peasants, eco-peasants in Puerto Rico, neo-jibaros, who use the word jibaro with pride. Uh, Jibaro would be like like saying hillbilly in the U.S. A jibaro is just uh, somebody who lives in the country and has a machete, in hand, it used to be um, it used to be used as an insult. You know, you're just a hibaro. You know, you don't want any progress. But this new generation of activists is picking up the word. Yes, I am hibaro, and I'm, I'm proud of it. And I work the land, and I and I work with dirt in my hands. And they are developing links with Latin America, with the Brazilian MST, yep. with the Cuban Association of Small Producers, and up with Haitian farmers, with Dominican farmers moving away towards away from the US and towards Latin America and developing they're doing grassroots uh, agronomic research really exciting even if it doesn't enjoy the acknowledgement of major academic institutions they support human rights causes they're addressing gender issues uh, pesticide dependence and it's a very very diverse movement because it's not just farmers it's difficult what to make of them because there's also lawyers, there's journalists, there's students, there's all kinds of people involved. And they're doing hands-on activities all the time. Just tonight, you know, almost every single day, uh, several times a week, there's some kind of meeting, get-together or movie showing or work 
task force meeting to talk about what to do about Monsanto, showing films, video conferences. So this is developing very, very fast. This None of this was happening 10 years ago. Uh, the corporations, of course, are worried about this. And the U.S. colonial power absolutely doesn't like this development at all. But it's happening. It's a useful movement and it's very exciting. There's another aspect here that I that I want to bring out uh, in regards to this question about colonialism and neocolonialism. And you actually touched on it earlier, and I want to return to it. That's the question of imports uh, and I- particularly imports of staple foods, um, you know, for instance, in Haiti, Haiti had traditionally for, you know, from back in the, till the independence days, you know, the early 19th century, Haiti had produced its own rice. Haiti had produced really the vast majority, if not all of the necessary uh, agricultural commodities for the um, sustainability and, and survival of the people of, of the country. And it was really Bill Clinton in particular and That's the right. Clintons in general who kind of imposed this import scheme onto Haiti where they were forced to import, you guessed it, Arkansas-grown rice at, a, at, a, at a, obviously a tremendous profit for Bill Clinton and his friends. Similarly, we have situations all throughout Latin America where the United States imposed its agricultural exports onto these countries. That's why, for instance, in Venezuela, which was historically an oil colony essentially of the United States until the rise of Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution, but even in Venezuela, you have a situation where it's cheaper for them to import food than it is to develop and to to, to grow their own food and their own uh, self-reliance when it comes to agricultural output. So I'm wondering... Is this an aspect of colonialism? Is this something that is really being brought out in these discussions among these activists? Because it's not just about sustainability. It's about breaking that neocolonial tie to the United States. Absolutely. One, uh, I would say the main argument against independence among people here is that, well, the Americans will starve. And of course, uh, so the strongest argument uh, the strongest push for independence is precisely to produce our own food. We argue that only an independent country can feed itself. It's never been any other way. And it's, it's really, really hard because human existence is founded upon grain, not salad greens, uh, not fruit, but grain. And we have a tsunami of corn coming in at all times. I think you, the U.S. produces something like 40% of the world's corn. Mm-hmm. Iowa alone produces more corn than all of Europe. How are you going to compete with that? Now, ironically, uh, some of that corn that is planted in the U.S. comes from seed developed in Puerto Rican fields. Same thing with rice. Uh, there's a rice in Arkansas and California that is planted that comes from experimental, experimental seed, uh, experimental rice fields in Puerto Rico. So it's, it's a really uh, embarrassing circle in which we provide uh, the raw materials for mass production in the United States, which then makes it impossible, very difficult for us to feed ourselves. Yeah, colonialism, in other words. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, absolutely. And, and we have a, an agriculture secretary, Mirna Comas, who did uh, a landmark work, research work on our food insecurity, 
We were very happy when she was appointed agriculture secretary in 2013, and she has done absolutely nothing except defend Monsanto's interests all the way. And I don't think our food insecurity situation has changed one bit. In fact, the government in Puerto Rico and its officials are terrified of talking about food sovereignty because it sounds too political. It sounds like disloyalty to the United States. But all of these issues are, again, are directly connected to colonialism. Many people here believe that the problems in Puerto Rico can be solved without addressing the issue of sovereignty because many people fear being political and alienating people, and they really want to formulate solutions that everybody will like. So uh, a lot of people uh, in the organic movement don't want to be contentious. Uh, And I have said before, within the organic movement, there's all kinds of people in Puerto Rico, not necessarily left. Some of them are bourgeois capitalists, plantation owners, employers, um, people who call themselves farmers, but they have a couple of hibaros doing all of the heavy lifting in the farm, reproduction of capitalists, and even feudal human relations. So even as we are opposed to Monsanto and the whole uh, corporate agricultural model, we also don't want to fall for organic capitalist agribusiness because that's not an alternative. That's no way of fighting hunger when you're selling uh, organic lettuce for $10 a pound. That, you know, that's very, pretty good for those who can afford it. But that's not the price range most people can afford in Puerto Rico. In order to make healthy local food affordable, you have to tackle politics. You have to step on some toes. Uh, The importers have uh, basically a mafia running in Puerto Rico from the docks all the way to the supermarkets and the captive uh, markets in prisons, schools, and hospitals. So there's no way to do this without making some special interests pretty angry some interests that don't want to see Puerto Ricans feeding ourselves. Now, I want you to tell me, if you could, a little bit, because I, I'm I'm adding this piece into our conversation because I do think it's important. Tell me a little bit about the situation uh, around these uh, primaries that are taking place. We're recording here uh, at the end of the week, so we're recording on June 2nd. I believe your primaries are June 6th, and uh, or is it June 5th? And, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And so by the time people are listening to this, the primaries have already happened. So what's happened leading up to this? Do we see a sort of a, a, a Bernie movement, a hashtag feel the burn? How many, how many Puerto Ricans are feeling the burn? What is the political climate like on the island? Well, there's a, a Facebook page, Puerto Ricanos con Bernie. Uh, definitely this is Bernie territory. Hillary is not going to win the primaries here at all, not a chance. Uh, Let me explain a little bit about the political reality. Uh, We don't have the presidential vote, but we do have primaries. Of course, that's a big, stupid colonial joke. You know, you have a petite, uh, truncated participation in the electoral process. So every four years, we have the, the machineries of the Democrat and Republican parties come to Puerto Rico and beg us to vote for this or that other candidate. In 2008, both Hillary and Obama came over to Puerto Rico as candidates to uh, pander to our vote. Hillary won the primary here, and she conceded the next day, So, which means that it didn't matter at all because the primary 
Democrat primaries here take place so late, I mean, in early June, that it's already pretty much a, a done issue. We had uh, George Bush Sr. He came over in the primaries here in 1980, Ted Kennedy. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, colonized peoples get very, very excited over any insignificant gesture by the colonizer. You know, the thrill of feeling important, even if it's only for a few days. So now we have the Democrat primaries coming up, and it's basically Bernie Sanders versus Hillary. And a large uh, segment of Puerto Rican liberals and some independence advocates are totally excited. They love Bernie. Many of them never heard of him a year ago. And they're totally thrilled that there's, wow, there's one nice guy, American, and we have to support him. Uh, Bernie came over to Puerto Rico on May 16. And get this, he was greeted at the airport by the union buster, neoliberal, former governor of Puerto Rico, Aníbal Acevedo Vila, a man who should be in prison, a man who turned in the leader of the Macheteros over to the FBI in 2005. I mean, this guy is the worst. He stands for everything that Bernie would stand against. He's guilty in large part for the debt crisis in Puerto Rico. He greeted Bernie at the airport, and the statement Bernie made, you know where he spoke? He spoke, uh, well, he did fill up the University of Puerto Rico Theater, but also the Luis Muñoz Marin Foundation. Luis Muñoz Marin is basically the granddaddy of Puerto Rican colonialism. He was our Quisling, basically uh, the first governor we ever had uh, elected by the people. And basically, he was a front for the U.S. And Bernie praised Muñoz Marin, and he said a number of outrageous things that nobody who is for independence, whatever, say. Uh, There's a lot of debate on social media among people in the left and liberals and independentistas who are either in favor or against Bernie. Um, So that's going to happen on Sunday. Um, The independence movement is, in general, dead set against him. But I have to say also that electoral participation is an issue that divides the Puerto Rico independence movement there's a large part of the movement that will not participate in elections, that the uh, um, revolutionary action has to be extra legal, extra official, and we should never use the official channels set up by the colonial government itself. Um, and also, as I remember it, George Washington and his violent separatist friends didn't hold a referendum to get the Redcoats and the UK out of the 13 colonies. I recall they used different means. And the same thing with Bolivar in South America. There was no referendum to get Spain out of Latin America. Same thing with the Irish. Same thing with Namibia and the South African occupation. You need a revolutionary struggle. It's not going to be by elections. And besides, the U.S. didn't hold elections to get into Puerto Rico. In 1898, the Navy came, invaded they fired upon the city of San Juan. They did not consult the people of Puerto Rico. And I have to say, in the 1930s, the Nationalist Party began to grow, 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 and grow very fast after they renounced participation in elections. That's what worried the Americans an awful lot. Mm-hmm. And we know that the U.S. government is very worried about electoral abstention in Puerto Rico because it makes the colonial system look bad. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm taking sides on this particular issue because the other side deserves a fair hearing. 
we have an independence party, Partido Independentista Puerto Rico, which is the electoral expression of the independence movement. And there's always a lot of brawl and discussion between pro-electoral and anti-electoral activists, which only goes to prove that elections demoralize and fragment our freedom movement here. People start fighting each other like crazy just when elections are coming up. And maybe that's the purpose of the whole thing. Well, uh, and now we have electronic voting. And what I hear from my sources is that a lot of the people at the State Elections Commission here don't even know how those things work. So looks like uh, we're going to have a pretty interesting disaster on Sunday. You know, I also don't want to take sides on the issue because, well, for a variety of reasons, but most importantly, because my views are sort of um, mixed in some ways and, and, and not in others. But what I do want to say is just a counterpoint to the abstention uh, and, you know, election boycott issue is that um, in Latin America, you know, the quote, the quote unquote Bolivarian revolution, I mean, Chavez came into power on the back of an election and he won do- more than a dozen elections. Correa came into power on the back of an election. Morales came to power on the back of an election, as did Lula and Rousseff and uh, Cristina That's Fernandez, right. Nestor Kirchner, the 21st century, uh, Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, don't forget him, you know, right. uh, the 21st century uh, progressive movement, uh, the quote-unquote pink tide in Latin America has I... been electorally based, and I think that that does need to be taken into account. However, the difference is that all of those countries are independent nations. Puerto right. Rico is not. And so elections in Puerto Rico in many ways are as controlled, if not in, in actually in many ways more controlled than they are even in the United States. So I think on the one hand, we shouldn't totally dismiss electoral politics in a Latin American context. On the other hand, Puerto Rico, at least as far as elections goes, is not like the rest of Latin America. Right, right. There's two, two observations I wish to make. Uh, the Independence Party here in Puerto Rico has one senator, and also has a representation on uh, municipal city councils all over Puerto Rico. They've done a very good work. Uh, the senator is the candidate for governor in November, Maria de Lourdes Santiago. She has done very fine work on the whole GMO issue, Monsanto Roundup. She's 100% on our side. Uh, I have testified in the Puerto Rican Senate uh, to her committee about the evils of genetically modified crops and pesticides and all of that. Her positions on all issues, I think all of them are pretty right on. Uh, and with regards to Latin America, a lot of these electoral victories were achieved after the ruling classes had been defeated or humiliated in one way or another. In Bolivia, for example, the people had overthrown two consecutive neoliberal governments. In Ecuador, before Correa and Alianza País won the elections, the indigenous peoples and campesinos on the left had overthrown three neoliberal presidents in a row. In the case of Venezuela, the political class, the partidocracia, was totally humiliated and totally defeated. So it was the right moment to throw elections. So this is what happened. This is the context. Um, It didn't happen just because people got together and put their differences aside. There was a lot of fighting in the streets, especially in the cases of Bolivia and Ecuador. That precedes elections. 
That's exactly right. Um, in in the time that we have remaining, uh, I just want to place Puerto Rico into the broader context of Latin America because you said something earlier, Carmelo, that I think is really critical, and that's that Puerto Rico is not the United States, that Puerto Rico is part of Latin America. And I think that part of the way that we need to, dare I use the term, decolonialize how we think about Puerto Rico is to place it within that context. And so with that in mind... You know, we're seeing a massive right-wing assault in Latin America. This is being driven by finance capital, by Wall Street, as we see in Brazil with Goldman Sachs boys being basically now in charge of the government. We see similarly in Argentina with the with the uh, resurgence of the right-wing under Mauricio Macri. Similarly, of course, the right-wing and their U.S. patrons uh, running amok in Venezuela. We we see a lot of this pushback, what we might call counter-revolution to the Bolivarian Revolution, if you will. And I want to ask you, how do we place Puerto Rico within this context? Are the challenges that Puerto Rico is facing similar to what we're seeing in the rest of Latin America? Is it unique in a sense? How would you place Puerto Rico in this broader Latin America narrative? Well, uh, Puerto Rico has been used by the U.S. as a base for counter-revolution in many, many ways, ideological, military, political, economic. A lot of right-wing refugees and emigres from South America and the Caribbean come to Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. not only to Miami. Many of them end up in Puerto Rico. The Venezuelan exile community in Puerto Rico is very right-wing, very white. They are not representative of the country. And we have many of those, uh, well, I, I don't know if we should call them refugees, but emigres from those countries. And they have a strong uh, effect on public opinion. Plus, we also have a pretty noisy and dangerous right-wing Cuban exile element also over here. And the the people associated with La Via Campesina over here and with the left are very, very – we're following all these developments uh, very closely – we had a, a a rally in front of the U.S. federal building a few weeks ago in support of Brazil and support of Dilma Rousseff, the impeached president, the legitimately elected president of Brazil. Um, but there's also a lot of ignorance in Puerto Rico about what is happening in Latin America. There's almost a complete media blackout, as local media believe that only things that happen in the U.S. have any importance at all. And, and, of course, the coverage of Latin America, Venezuela, and Cuba is completely disgraceful. But, again, it's hard to tell uh, what the empire is thinking, what the empire is planning. Um, I have to say that, also I have to add to this, the invasion of Grenada in 1983 was launched from Puerto Rico. Several elements of the Bay of Pigs invasion of the CIA in Cuba in 1961 were rehearsed. The the training maneuvers were done in Puerto Rico. And we also had indication that some of the death squads, uh, killers that are coming from the U.S. to Venezuela are are using Puerto Rico as a stepping stone. I had some sources tell me in a private university that they had all these strange American students with military tattoos that wanted to know a lot about Latin America. And what we believe is that these people are then moving on to places like Venezuela, pretending to be college students, exchange students, 
but their tattoos are military and their manners are military. They stick close together. They don't mix with the popular uh, local population, which leads us to believe that they're being sent to Venezuela to train paramilitaries or something like that. As a journalist, I would love to give you more about that, and we're going to keep on looking into it a lot more. Puerto Rico, for example, is also an important part of the uh, the program to undermine the International Doctors Initiative of Cuba. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, approaching uh, doc- Cuban doctors who are all over the world doing uh, work for the poor and enticing them to desert and come to the U.S., a number of those deserters come through Puerto Rico to study medical school here so they can get quick credentials and they can practice medicine in the United States. That's done right through Puerto Rico. So you have everything from GMO crops to military invasions and all kinds of initiatives aimed at Latin America that are done right through Puerto Rico. But a lot more research needs to be done. Indeed. And and one point I want to make on that, too, is that it's not just um, that they're being, you know, that they're being sent to train uh, paramilitaries that are going, you know, um, penetrating into Venezuela. We also need to understand the financing of this and that a lot of the financing comes from two sources. It comes, one, from the drug money and two, from the drug war money. And what I mean by that is billions of dollars that are provided by the United States under the so-called Project Columbia, so-called Project Columbia to fight the drug war. Much of that money is actually then redirected through various channels to funding these uh, paramilitaries, these death squads, many of which are connected to some of the Venezuelan street gangs. So a lot of the violence, a lot of the murders, the kidnappings, the political assassinations, people like Robert Serra, Ricardo Duran, others who have been assassinated in Venezuela. There is is a very uh, interesting and suspicious connection between those killings and a lot of that violence and these paramilitaries that are funded via Colombia by the United States. States. Uh, that's right. Uh, Puerto Rico is a shadow history. A lot of it is not known. But what we do know is that Puerto Rico for much of the 20th century and even today has had a lot of international revolutionary and counter-revolutionary activity. It is no less true that Puerto Rican progressives and revolutionaries have given a lot of help to revolutionary movements and governments in Latin America. Uh, we have a Cuba Solidarity Committee which is very strong, and Cuba has a de facto Puerto Rico embassy, La Misión de Puerto Rico, right in Havana, which is the home of all Puerto Ricans that visit Cuba. Uh, Cuba has always been solidly, since 1959, uh, supporting the Puerto Rican Revolution and independence. Uh, There's one story. I, I really want Americans to know about this. Puerto Rico gave a lot of aid to the Nicaraguan revolutionaries fighting the U.S., in the 1930s, when the U.S. Uh, invaded and the uh, guerrillas led by Sandino were fighting and beating the U.S. Marines, uh, the U.S. sent a professional killer, a, a military man called Francis Riggs, who organized the ambush in which Sandino was captured and eventually murdered. He was then sent to Puerto Rico to work his magic uh, in exterminating the Puerto Rican nationalists in the mid-1930s. And Puerto Rico became his grave. Sandino's murder was avenged in Puerto Rico. Uh, a squadron of, uh, of nationalistas ambushed him, 
and blew him off. And we have a celebration because uh, uh, we, we have, uh, I think it's the 80th anniversary and the descendants of the na nationalist fighters who undertook that hit were there to be honored. And we went to the graves of those two warriors, Bucham and Rosado, to praise them for their courage. So there's a lot going on in Puerto Rico as far as um, revolution, counter-revolution is concerned. I have to say Puerto Rico is not a part of the U.S., but it is a part of U.S. history because the U.S. is sovereign over Puerto Rico and no repressive action takes place without the U.S. knowing and directing it. Uh, I don't see anything about Puerto Rico in books written by Noam Chomsky or Howard Zinn. But, you know, there's talk about the Ludlow Massacre, which was in Colorado early in the 20th century, the Attica Massacre in New York, Kent State Massacre, Waco more recently. But there's not a word on those books about the Ponce Massacre, in which the Puerto Rico colonial government slaughtered nationalists in broad daylight in the city of Ponce back in the 1930s. And by the same token, many Latin Americans think Puerto Rico is a part of the U.S., so they don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. Eduardo Galeano's uh, seminal work, The Open Veins of Latin America, doesn't mention Puerto Rico. So we really have ended up nowhere in the historical narratives of progressives in North America as well as in Latin America. People all over the world don't know what to make of us. Well, on the on the positive side, that's uh, that's the task of the revolutionaries in Puerto Rico to make something of Puerto Rico, something other than the colony that it's been made into. Obviously, I think anybody on the left of 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 any clear mind and and uh, sound politics would stand in solidarity with Puerto Rico, Puerto Rican independence, and the Puerto Rican people. Carmelo Ruiz, I want to thank you for coming on the show again, listeners. You got to follow Carmelo's work; it's really some of the best and uh, out there. He uh, is visiting faculty at the Institute for Social Ecology, the director of the Latin American en Energy and Environment Monitor. Follow him on Twitter at Carmelo Ruiz. Carmelo, thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, thank you, Eric. Thank you for this opportunity. And I'll stay tuned for the podcast. I'm a faithful listener of this podcast. Thank you so much. Listeners, as always, thanks again. Speak to you next week. 